Uh, welcome to Bruegel. I'm Nicolas Veron. It's my pleasure on behalf of Bruegel uh, to welcome you for this session. We'll discuss uh, money laundering, anti-money laundering, uh, which I learned uh, this year uh, are two different things, uh, and um, especially the publication of, uh, by Bruegel uh, of a policy contribution last month, um, co-authored by Judge Kirchenbaum and myself. Now, here's the problem. We're talking about ethics and conduct here, and this panel starts with a massive conflict of interest because I will be chairing the panel as co-author of the papers that gets discussed. Um, so I apologize for this first. I disclose my conflict. I will try to uh, stick to my chairing responsibilities, even so I will probably fail. Uh, but the paper will be uh, presented by Josh um, and then discussed by um, Raluca and Tobias from the European Commission, and then by Olaf uh, from the German Ministry of Finance. Uh, I think you all have the bios of the participants on this panel, um, but uh, suffice to say that uh, Josh uh, has uh, considerable policy experience and practitioner experience of uh, anti-money laundering enforcement as an official in the US Treasury, first at the Office of Financial uh, of foreign assets and um, foreign assets control, so that's the sanctions, and then at FinCEN, which is the anti-money laundering piece. Also that the commission is well represented here because Tobias works at DG FISMA, financial services regulation, and uh, Raluca at DG Justice, just uh, so both sides of the aisle, if I can put it that way, when it comes to AML uh, legislation and Olaf Hachstein uh, is uh, in charge of these issues at the German Federal Ministry of Finance, kind of holistically representing the member states' uh, <laughs> views <laughs> here, but we know they're diverse, and so uh, we'll take you uh, with uh, that understanding. So enough from me, um, and uh, over to you, Josh, to present our paper. Thank you. So I met uh, Nicola Verone in, uh, in the spring in Washington, because I knew he knew a lot about um, European financial regulation, and I didn't. And I started talking to him, and we eventually decided to uh, write a paper. So he is neutral and has conflicted himself out, so I will take full responsibility um, for what is about to occur. Um, it seems that this year uh, there has crystallized an elite consensus in Washington and Brussels and in member state capitals that um, money laundering and illicit finance should perhaps be seen not just as a regulatory issue and not just as a corruption or criminal justice issue, although it's all those things, but increasingly as a security threat. And I think that that is driven in large part by the prominence and magnitude and volume of large-scale money laundering scandals that have occurred, particularly within the European Union, as well as um, the uh, linkage of some of those incidents to Russia and Russian foreign policy, and Russia has been linked to many, although not all, or to portions of, but not the whole, uh, many of uh, the cases that we're going to discuss. So there have been a number of cases of really large-scale money laundering in European Union banks across a number of countries, uh, both large member states as well as smaller ones, wealthier as well as less wealthy. Uh, some of the things that have been in the news in the last year or two most prominently have been uh, Danske Bank in Estonia, so the largest bank in Denmark's uh, branch in Estonia. Uh, several banks in Latvia, including Trasta Komersbanka and ABLV, 
Pilatus Bank and others in Malta, ING, the largest bank in the Netherlands, uh, several banks in Cyprus involved in things involving the Panama Papers and uh, a bank taken over by money launderers from Russia, and then uh, also quite infamously the Deutsche Bank uh, money laundering scandal which occurred in London. Uh, what we've seen here is in many of these cases illicit financial facilitators actually either taking over or compromising a bank and often moving billions of dollars through one institution. So we're talking about really large scale activity and often not just one group of people laundering their criminal proceeds, but a lot of money coming through the same conduit or channel. As I mentioned, this has often been tied to Russia or other countries, the former Soviet Union. Uh, one of the characteristics we see here in the current framework in the EU is that enforcement just varies and by enforcement, I mean enforcement of AML uh, financial regulatory requirements. Uh, supervision and enforcement varies widely, as well as criminal law enforcement. Uh, there have been two very large fines recently. The Dutch fine against ING was quite large, and the uh, Financial Conduct Authorities, and that was the Dutch prosecutors, actually. And the Financial Conduct Authorities fine against Deutsche Bank London was quite large. Besides those, the fines in the EU have been certainly relative to the US, but also, I would say, even on an absolute basis, often not that big in comparison to the amount of activity and or the size of the institution. Uh, sometimes they haven't even been public or limited information has been public. Sometimes it's not even known if fines have occurred at all. There have been rumors in the press uh, about fines against certain institutions. I would also say there haven't been a huge number of high-profile prosecutions of bankers or facilitators at a high level, although those are hard. And we can talk more about that. I mean, I think one of the reasons we want to focus on supervision is the importance of supervision because prosecution is hard. And there has, of course, been this emerging recognition that something needs to be done at the European level. We have quotes from uh, representative quotes from uh, EU officials as well, uh, the head of the uh, SSM's uh, supervisory board, as well as uh, the press. Uh, in a nutshell, we like to, I would say it's useful to think of AML as resting on three separate pillars or the, the fight against illicit finance is resting on three separate pillars of which AML supervision of banks and other financial institutions is one. So here we're talking about regulatory requirements, anti-money laundering requirements, meaning you must do things to try to detect, report, and stop illicit activity. So a bank or other financial institution will be required to have an AML program reasonably designed on a risk basis to detect and report and stop this activity, and that is and a financial supervisor will examine the bank to see if it complies with it. So we're not talking about actually the criminal act of laundering money. This is the financial supervisory component. Uh, the second pillar of the uh, policy toolkit, or that's a horrible mixed metaphor, the second pillar on which AML policy rests uh, would be coordination and information sharing to support regulators as well in law enforcement. So that uh, starts with financial intelligence units, or FIUs, which receive suspicious activity reporting and other records analyze it and disseminate it to police, other law enforcement, and regulators and supervisors. Uh, those are coordinated. Every country pretty much has one FIU and are coordinated by the Egmont group of FIUs and share information with one another. And then the third pillar uh, would be criminal law enforcement prosecution, which can involve, as in the Dutch case that I cited, uh, criminal violations of AML obligations on the supervisory side as well as the more traditional thing we think of when we think about money laundering, which is criminal money laundering prosecutions, meaning a predicate offense has occurred, you did something illegal, you moved the money, and you're being prosecuted for knowingly facilitating a transaction with the proceeds of a predicate offense. Um, asset seizures or asset forfeitures, as we call them in the US, would be another component of this. And uh, 
I would just say conceptually, it's important to understand you can have AML program violations without criminal money laundering. You can have criminal money laundering without an AML program violation, or you can often have both together. So we think that the bang for the buck on reform for the EU, my argument would be, is focusing on a centralized AML supervisory architecture, regulation and supervision of financial institutions, foremost among them, but not exclusively, banks. So the current uh, state of play for uh, the AML supervisory architecture in the EU is there is um, uh, pretty much uh, no central EU role for AML supervision beyond the limited role of the EBA, the European Banking Authority, to ensure that national competent authorities carry out uh, EU legislation. But in practice, banks are supervised by their national authorities. So within the euro area, the single supervisory mechanism is responsible for prudential supervision of banks, but has no authority to examine or, or um, issue fines for AML violations. That is solely the, within the purview of national supervisors. Um, therefore, enforcement varies. Your mileage may vary. Uh, a couple other interesting wrinkles here. On the prudential side, the home regulator of a bank is responsible for prudential supervision of the foreign branch. In AML, the host supervisor is responsible, uh, which can lead to some interesting uh, developments. Perhaps that was a contributing factor in the Danske Bank uh, situation. Uh, some other wrinkles, the European Central Bank uh, is responsible for licensing. The SSM is responsible for licensing within the euro area. Review of qualifying holdings, meaning whether uh, someone who wants to purchase a controlling share in a bank is qualified or appropriate to do so. And fit and proper checks, meaning the qualifications and propriety of, uh, of uh, people who are going to be in senior management roles or on the board. So of course, AML and money laundering is a factor in considerations for all of these uh, responsibilities that the ECB has, but AML supervision is, like, should a license be granted or, or withdrawn? Should a purchase of a stake be approved? Are board members or um, senior management appropriate and fit and proper? Well, AML is a big factor in all that, but that information resides with the national competent authorities. Um, so for example, for uh, a license of a bank to be withdrawn on the basis of AML violations, the national competent authority needs to gather evidence, <coughs> summarize it, <coughs> excuse me, submit a recommendation to the ECB that they withdraw the license. So that's a very awkward process. I have a, a, a small point on this, which is really for the nerds. For the smaller banks in the SSM, so the less significant institutions, the fit and proper vetting is done by the national authorities and is under their responsibility. But the licensing and qualifying holding review, as Josh just referred to, is a responsibility of the ECB as well, even for the small banks. So that's, uh, that's really a, a general uh, division of labor. How am I doing on time? You're still good. Uh, very quickly, how the AML supervision works in the United States. FinCEN, which is part of the, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which is part of the US Treasury Department, uh, is the AML supervisor and also the Financial Intelligence Unit. Uh, in other words, it has a component that supports law enforcement in gathering, analyzing, and disseminating suspicious activity reports. It also sets the AML regulations, issues interpretive guidance, and can issue fines. In practice, primary examination authority for banks and other financial institutions is delegated to different prudential supervisors. Um, and there are many of them. So for large banks, it's generally going to be the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which is also part of the Treasury Department, but completely independent and does not report up through the same chain as FinCEN. So really think of it as a separate entity. 
Um, there are others for, uh, for depository, including credit unions have their own. The FDIC, which is deposit insurance, does many regional banks. Uh, the Federal Reserve, the central bank, oversees bank holding companies, so the, the legal entity on top of a universal or diversified banking group. Um, it also oversees some uh, foreign banking organizations. Uh, and then, very important, in the US, large aspects of a large financial institution are not considered depository in banking. Investment banking and securities trading and derivatives trading are generally going to be overseen by other regulators or supervisors, the SEC most prominently, as well as the CFTC. Uh, you've also got state-level regulators, most prominently New York Department of Financial Services. The point is, this is a fragmented system, and um, one of its uh, positive aspects is robust enforcement, very thorough professional examination, particularly by the banking regulators, and a history of large fines. Uh, the largest fines have come from the Justice Department for criminal willful violations of AML uh, requ program requirements. The largest fines have not come from the regulators than justice. Among the regulators, the, largest, the larger fines have tended to be Federal Reserve and OCC, Office of the Comptroller. So our theory of what's going on in the European Union, what the structural problem is, and, and uh, my argument is basically you have uh, incentives for illicit activity to concentrate itself in particular jurisdictions, particularly but not always in smaller jurisdictions. Uh, often at certain institutions within those jurisdictions, not necessarily every financial institution. And this can lead to political pressure and or regulatory capture and make it hard for the supervisors to do their jobs, even if they want to. A vicious circle in which the more money that comes in that may be of dubious provenance or origin, the larger these banks grow, the more political power they have, the harder it is for supervisors to enforce. Therefore, the more they can conduct this activity and grow the business, the harder it is to stop them, et cetera. It kind of can spiral downward. On top of that, you have a single market in which a licensed uh, financial institution or bank in one country can passport those services throughout the, actually not throughout the entire EU, throughout the, the single market. Um, and so you have banking union within the euro area in which the ECB is responsible, as we referenced earlier, but is powerless to do anything about this. Um, I would also argue that attempting to address this on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis, leaving AML to the national competent authorities, certainly has its merits in, in the breach. That is a good thing to do. But ultimately, you're going to be playing whack-a-mole because of this, uh, these incentives. If you drive the activity out of one country, you may just move it into a neighboring country where some of the uh, processes can duplicate themselves. An additional consideration, I would argue, is you're also making the first line of defense small, lower capacity jurisdictions where a lot of offshore money has concentrated that even were there, were there to be no political problem and no risk of the vicious circle and or regulatory capture, you're still having, you still have large concentrations of offshore, of non-resident money with outsized banking sectors in very small countries that simply have limited capacity. And that's a problem in and of itself. Uh, I argue that the more efficient and effective way to centralize would be a unitary architecture in which an EU agency has direct supervisory authority and can go in and examine directly rather than a sort of enhanced uh, ESA role where, let's say, the European Banking Authority has much more power to direct the national competent authorities. I think it's more efficient in terms of information flow and a single point of contact to just centralize all the information and decision-making authority at one agency. Um, and therefore, we advocate 
creating a unitary architecture in which the Central European Agency directly is responsible for AML supervision of all financial institutions, as opposed to an enhanced two-tiered architecture. Um, in the paper, we lay, out a, we lay out a bunch of different ways to do this. We come down advocating creating an EMLA, a European Anti-Money Laundering Authority, which would be responsible not for any particular segment of, financial, of the financial system, but for all financial institutions, banking, payment services, securities broker-dealers, et cetera, and potentially could expand over time to enforce and examine for AML program obligations even among intermediaries, so non-financial institutions like lawyers, accountants, uh, and others. Um, we think that having the centralized agency would empower it to be proactive, to go in and find problems instead of waiting for them to be reported by national competent authorities. It would resolve the home host conflict where there can be ambiguity or miscommunication or lack of communication between authorities and member states. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it could cover all financial institutions, not just banks, uh, and would focus on and cultivate excellence in AML and be single-mindedly focused on that. Of course, this could introduce additional complexity because now you have a new EU-level agency, but we think that the track record of the last several years and the risk of the continuation of the status quo makes the creation of a new well-resourced, significantly-sized agency worth it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Josh. Um, obviously, we'll discuss, uh, I'm sure, the merits and uh, downsides of our proposals uh, later on in the panel, uh, and starting with you. Um, I don't know if you have a PowerPoint or... Okay. Okay. So, so if, I, if I kick off, I'm, I'm going to, to give the floor to, to Raluca um, in, a, in, a, in a minute. Um, what I wanted first to do was to, was to give a few comments onto the, uh, um, the, the Bruegel paper. Um, I, I agree with a lot of the, um, the, the, the analysis in the, in, in the paper, and, and um, I think it's a very helpful description of the EU system. Um, and I think it's very helpful in particular in pinpointing, um, say, the EU's supervisory problem. Uh, let's be, be honest, it's, a, it's, it's not ideal. Um, and I very much liked as well, Joshua, we spoke about this, I very much like that, that, that comparison with the United States uh, system. Um, that, that's, that's also very informative. Um, take some comfort, maybe schadenfreude, I don't know, but uh, it, it's, not just, it's not just the EU that faces these issues of, of coordination between different agencies uh, at different levels. Um, uh, so, um, you know, what we have is, is, is a, uh, an issue which I think we really need to, uh, to, to, to resolve, but I, I, I can see that those kind of problems exist uh, elsewhere as well. Um, but I do also take note from what you were saying is, is that really where uh, I see a big, big difference uh, with the, the EU system is that the US has such a, a, a tough and, and rigorous enforcement process. And um, I think, to be, to be fair, I think we, we paint a much more diverse picture uh, across the EU in terms of the, 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 the levels of enforcement. And I think that's a really crucial uh, element in this, uh, um, in, in this uh, issue. Um, so, um, Drawing on that, I think, why is what is this in terms of an EU perspective that we can we can draw from this? I think the um, uh, the scandals uh, that have hit European banks um, certainly this year um, are damaging for the reputation of the the financial system. Um, I think 
all the more so, and I think you mentioned that you alluded to that in, in, in your slides, uh, um, it shouldn't be the case, it shouldn't be the case that, in, in the case of a Latvian uh, bank, that um, it is only through threatened action by the United States, a third country uh, uh, um, agency, uh, that, that actually um, the, the closure of the bank uh, uh, was uh, occurred. And, and we should be, in the EU, we should be better able to police our own institutions. I think that's a, that's a very important point to make. Um, I think, um, as well, these scandals have illustrated the strong interconnections that exist between uh, prudential and anti-money laundering supervision. Um, we are faced with, with several circumstances now in where uh, discovery uncovering of, 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 of mortgage lending within a financial institution, within a bank, has actually led to bank failures. Um, that's something different. That's a different level of simply having banks facing big fines. When we're talking about banking failure as a result of money laundering uh, uh, um, failings, um, well, that, that, has, uh, that, that brings on a whole new dimension, I think. And, and um, in turn, I mean, there can be in, in extremists, there can be um, financial stability implications resulting from that. And because we have a very closely integrated uh, EU financial system, those stability implications have the potential to, uh, to stretch across borders. Um, so, I mean, this is, these scandals, I think, have brought to light the, you know, the, the issue of, of the need to safeguard the reputation of the EU's financial system. Um, we, we claim, we, we, and we do, I think we have a very robust anti-money laundering uh, regime, uh, I think in terms of the standards that, the, that we set, um, but it is, I think, very, very damaging to the reputation of the EU's financial system if um, <coughs> it, it, you know, we, we, we have to rely on, on outsiders uh, to point to AML failings. Um, and I think that's, that, that that's undermines the, um, our ability to uh, to sell the EU system, the EU financial system, as a, as a, as a place to do business, as a really solid uh, um, environment. Um, um, so, and I think that's something, I think that's a lesson that, that politicians have, 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 have drawn on and reacted to. Um, and uh, it was with this spate of money laundering scandals that has indeed galvanized us at the EU level to, to take action. Um, on the basis of work that was actually already being done um, as of, I think it was May, uh, that we had set up a reflection group with the, um, the European Supervisory Authorities, with the SSM and the Commission uh, working together. Um, at some stage, we got the message that we really needed to, 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 to bring forward the reflections and come forward with a, uh, a proposal. I think the, the let's say the... Um, the understanding of the sensitivity and the importance of this particular issue for the EU system was recognized at a very high level, and uh, that explains why, uh, with greatest apologies to Nicolas, because it was on the 12th of September that he came to us, to the Financial Services Committee, to present his draft paper uh, with a lot of ideas, and suddenly we surprised him with a, uh, with, with a, with a commission proposal. And, uh, <laughs> it was a great, uh, not only entertainment, but uh, learning experience for me. Anyway, it, 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 it happened, it happened uh, 
uh, as a result of, of, I think, strong political pressures. Uh, so um, I'm, I will just focus very briefly on um, the proposal, the legislative proposal that we came out with on the 12th of September. We also came out with a communication, but the legislative proposal um, is um, in the form of a modification to an existing proposal under negotiation, which is the, uh, um, the ESA, the European Supervisory Authorities Review Proposal. Um, and what we're doing is we, we have injected elements of anti-money laundering into that proposal. So we are tasking, in particular, the European Banking Authority with new anti-money laundering uh, functions. Um, we're doing that in a way which concentrates the, um, uh, the resources uh, and the expertise into a single supervisory authority, because anti-money laundering is actually spread across the three. Here we've actually taken a clear policy choice to actually focus on the European Banking Authority, and we're giving the possibility to the European Banking Authority to look beyond banks, but to also look in cooperation with the other ESAs, to insurance companies, to investment firms, and, and, and uh, other financial players. Um, so we're also um, clarifying the scope and the content of the tasks that are entrusted to the, anti, uh, the, the European Banking Authority. Uh, we are uh, reinforcing tools by carrying out, uh, uh, for carrying out um, uh, anti-money laundering tasks uh, to promote consistent, systematic, and, and effective action um, so they will be tasked, for example, with gathering information on um, AML practices in, in member states and promoting convergence of supervisory processes. Um, also, in particular, empowering the European Banking Authority to request competent authorities to begin investigations on possible breaches uh, of, of the rules. And also, we're strengthening the coordination role for the EBA vis-a-vis -vis the outside, the third country, uh, dimension and, and that obviously in the context of the Latvian banking scandal that's particularly important but uh, we see that there could be a role there for them to play uh, a, a sort of an intermediary role. Um, now that is perhaps you could say that's, a, that's only a modest step and the problem's very very uh, um, big and deep um, but we think it's an important first step uh, towards a more Europeanized approach to anti-money laundering supervision. Um, we think it will have a material impact on the way uh, supervision is coordinated and the way the rules are monitored. Um, but it's not the only thing. It's not the only thing we've proposed in the, uh, in the 12th of September package. There's a number of non-legislative short-term measures uh, that we also um, have, um, have put forward. Um, there's also uh, a link towards the work being done to negotiate um, prudential rules of the Capital Requirements Directive uh, and, and regulation to try and make sure that the supervisors on the prudential side also take into account um, anti-money laundering considerations in their work. Um, and I'm not going to talk now about the about the bigger long-term picture because I want to leave that to to, to Luca in in a, in a second. I think the, I, I will only say how, how are we doing for time. Okay, I will only say then that um, I think the, um, the political context is such that there is I mean, an increasing realization that, that change is, is definitely needed here. We can't, I think, carry on with the, with the, sort of the same sort of rather slow 
uh, state. And I think that um, I'm just from my own personal experience, having worked um, at, back in 2006, 2007 on crisis management uh, in the banking sector, just ahead of the financial crisis, uh, you, you are faced at that particular moment with uh, a mountain to climb. You, you know that it will be really, really, really difficult to get member states to go towards something that you understand is, is needed. And it takes, in, in 2008, a massive financial crisis. But what did we end up with? We ended up with uh, uh, Banking Union, uh, the SSM, uh, a, a, a central system supervision. Um, I'm not... I'm not saying this is of, the, of anything like the same, the same nature, but it takes a crisis, it takes these things to push forwards to actually achieve things which we, we understand, maybe from the European policy level, uh, we, we understand those things to be very, very important. So um, I, I thank you very much for the, the Bruegel paper. I think it's really interesting, it's really insightful. It helps, it helps in terms of that overall discussion. So I pass the floor now to uh, Luca. Thank you. I will join uh, Toby in, um, in praising you for a, a very ambitious uh, paper, which goes uh, much uh, further than um, we have gone so far um, uh, in redesigning or in, in responding to a problem that we're having, and this will not uh, hide. Uh, and yes, we all agree that we need to further enhance uh, the anti-money laundering supervision at EU level. We do not operate, though, in a void, and uh, the proposal that was tabled on the 12th of September as a response, I mean, an emergency response to a situation of crisis with many banks being hit by, by scandals, this is, again, it's a step. It's not the first step. Prior to that, we had, and I'm sorry for those of you who are very familiar with the EU legal architecture, we have... Um, um, a series of directives, as the paper uh, rightfully uh, say, which were amending success uh, uh, further to uh, the working in, in FATF, and we have reached a point in which now we have a fifth anti-money laundering directive, which replied to a context that was a bit independent of uh, the work in FATF, and which provides, among other things, that yes, there is a place to increase uh, anti-money laundering supervision in, uh, in banks across the Union, please. One of the responsibilities of chairing the panel that I take very seriously and doesn't create a conflict is acronym explainer. So FATF is the Financial Action Task Force. Uh, it's a, a global well, entity that uh, issues recommendations uh, for AML at the global level. Okay, I will try not to speak in acronyms any, any longer. Um, uh, so, the fifth anti-money laundering directive is a step forward in the sense that, uh, as I said, it's not a response to, to the work in the Financial Action Task Force, but it is a response to uh, what we need uh, at EU level to make, uh, you know, out of our legal framework, one of the most robust in the world. This is not enough, I fully take the point. So it's not uh, good enough uh, or enough to have a, a sound uh, legal framework at EU level. The idea is whether uh, this, uh, this framework is implemented. And uh, yes, you've made some proposals in the paper, including to have a centralized uh, a body, uh, an anti-money laundering agency. And this goes indeed uh, far further uh, uh, beyond what we have thought. Uh, we uh, take the line in the European Commission that we have to first give um, uh, the time for the fifth anti-money laundering directive to be implemented by member states. As I said, 
The directive acknowledges the fact that there is a lot of room uh, for improvement of anti-money laundering supervision. And if I may, uh, I think that one of the lessons that we all have to, um, uh, to, to accept, to acknowledge after the scandals that we had uh, with the many banks uh, uh, in the union hit uh, by, yeah, by, uh, by money laundering operation is indeed the better uh, integration of anti-money laundering supervision and prudential supervision. So basically what we want with the implementation of the fifth is indeed to reach a point where we don't, uh, we don't wait in a bank for money laundering to be produced, actually, the deed to be produced, just to acknowledge that we have a problem. No, we have to have a preventative approach, and the flag has to be uh, uh, raised uh, uh, by the anti-money laundering supervision, by the prudential supervision that has to integrate this message before anti-money laundering is actually produced. And I'm pretty certain that uh, this is a lesson learned uh, um, uh, by now. Uh, of course, that the Commission um, goes, uh, it, we have an incremental approach to our legislation. Again, it is the case that the fourth anti-money laundering directive, and I'm also looking at uh, Olaf because he's representing a member state here, um, had a deadline for transposition by, transposed um, uh, in, in national law by member states in June 2017, so last year. We have the fifth which has a transposition deadline in January next, uh, 2020. So we believe that now uh, jumping to the conclusion that we need new legislation between, uh, before allowing the current legislation to actually become effective would be, uh, uh, would be uh, at least from a technical point of view, not very advisable. But this being said, uh, uh, there is a work ongoing. We also explore how to um, also, as a result of uh, provisions of the fifth anti-money laundering directive, how to increase cooperation uh, between FIUs. Uh, as you said, there is one FIU financial intelligence unit in each member state. We'll issue a report next year. So we are attacking, if I may say so, the problem from many angles, so that uh, when the moment comes to uh, make a proposal which is sound, and which is not uh, just a very quick reaction to, um, to a series of scandals. Uh, this I, I acknowledge. I just, uh, my last word, because uh, I've seen that we passed uh, already the 15 I minutes allowed. Uh, uh, just uh, one word on EBA, just to echo what Toby said. Uh, this is a response to a, a problem that we, we had, and we thought that a first step to um, to strengthen the capacity of the EBA and the, the tasks of the EBA um, in terms of anti-money laundering supervision at union level is a first uh, step. Uh, this is by no means uh, to say that uh, the EBA was conferred uh, uh, a role uh, in the legislative proposal as the new anti-money laundering uh, agency. We're not yet there, but we're giving it uh, serious uh, thought uh, uh, after, again, we give time to our legislation to be properly implemented. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to the event. And thank you very much for the very helpful paper you produced uh, preparing this and um, um, like triggering the discussion and having the discussion on the European level. We share many, many um, parts of the analysis, and that includes uh, namely the idea about a vicious circle that is produced within the internal market, and uh, also the thoughts about um, 
the incentive structures that would uh, would lead different member states to different business models in a way within the common market and that's very helpful to think about uh, the new structure um, what uh, what we do have is obviously some concerns that's uh, that's the usual job of the member states um, and uh, one of them uh, relates to the point uh, Raluca just made which for us is uh, of very high importance, and that is the this link between prudential supervision and um, uh, anti-money laundering supervision. This is uh, one one of the things we want to do further work on, and we do, which we don't have yet reflected in legislative activity. Um, another one being the uh, different sectors. I think that's uh, the different business sectors. That's something that is not yet uh, reflected in this, these ideas about a new um, agency because we think there are fundamental differences between the banking sector, the rest of the financial sector, and then namely the non-financial sector, which is covered as well by the European uh, anti-money laundering legislation. So let me take, me, let me take the, that in four points. First on the, um, first on the, new, uh, the idea of a new agency, IAMLA, a dedicated European agency that would uh, serve as a um, focal point for uh, anti-money laundering legislation and supervision uh, as, a, as a hub, information hub, whatever. Um, we are quite open to discuss it, but I uh, completely agree with Verluca that that wouldn't have been something that uh, could be tabled now. It has to be given some thought and preparation. And again, I would like to make this point. We see a very large challenge if we want to include the non-financial sector in such a, such a supervision exercise because we see a lot, uh, a lot lower level of uh, harmonization and a lot of more, um, in fact, it's about collecting information also. How, do, how is it handled in member states? How does it work? Um, I wouldn't say we as a member state are reluctant to hand over competencies in this. We might even be relieved because it's, it's a very challenging uh, process, the non-financial sector, and that, that is uh, even more true for large member states where, where, where competencies are spread out through the federal system and the non-financial sector mainly is supervised by entities that are not on the national level. So um, a large challenge there if you really want to address that, uh, but nevertheless uh, some necessity, but on the other hand, less of a necessity, much less of a necessity than in the banking sector where we've seen the scandals. So, uh, in terms of prioritizing a clear, um, a clear um, statement that we really should look at the banking sector. Um, another issue, obviously, when it comes to the uh, dedicated authority is the enforcement issue. Um, uh, to be touched briefly on that, I, I guess, the, um, I think the strengths of, um, of, for example, the unitary system of ECB comes from uh, the close cooperation, the close linkage with the national supervisor that can, that can uh, adapt ECB uh, decisions to the, national, uh, to the national process, can help enforce them and can formulate them in the right language, whatever. That is uh, uh, something that is um, uh, needed. And I think in the very la uh, last part of your document, you make this point by uh, opting for the uh, idea of delegating uh, 
concrete responsibilities then back to another level. So that's, uh, we are open to discuss it, but it, of course it needs some time. So secondly, our favorite issue, and that's really the one between linking uh, prudential supervision and uh, anti-money laundering supervision. And that, that issue probably uh, plays out a bit differently in member states that are within the banking union and uh, differently for those who are outside the banking union. And then again, it might be different for um, uh, significant institutions directly supervised by ECB and less significant institutions. Um, I think there is a quite a quite a good track record of uh, keeping anti-money laundering supervision and prudential supervision within one authority. It's it's what 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 is the case in almost uh, all member states, and. Um, now we have the, uh, obviously we have the banking union, we have uh, SSM and the ECB stepping in as a, a supervisory authority and doing direct supervision. But being confronted to this, the, to this picture, we need to be careful that we don't split uh, AML supervision and prudential supervision now more than necessary. So that would be something that could naturally come in with a dedicated authority and, um, and, and it could come in with ECB being solely uh, a, super, a supervisory authority but not having no responsibility in AML. So we are trying to address that. There is work in the council ongoing to really um, get more clarity on the link. And there, uh, to, uh, Toby has mentioned it. there is also work ongoing to get something into CRD for, uh, COD4 or COD5 in the trilogue, which is right now running. And we think that this is really very important work. And in the short time, short term could be more um, instrumental to really uh, raise awareness of uh, AML issues in the banking sector than the exercise we are doing uh, in the ESA review. So ESA review would be my third point. Um, uh, I think um, Reloca is absolutely right. Something had to be done. And um, although we as member states uh, have an issue in terms of process, that the discussions started uh, more or less in, uh, in the spring of this year and then with the um, working group by institutions and the member states who actually have the AML authorities didn't come into this process. We came in at a very late st uh, pro uh, stage of the process, which is now more or less. And now the time is very, the time frame is very limited for this uh, legislature. So uh, let's see what we can do. Um, there are some uh, very um, interesting elements uh, in the proposal for the ESA review, and uh, we agree that we have to. To, to step up uh, what ESAs are doing in terms of money laundering. They did have a competency beforehand. It was in the regulations, but it wasn't made much use of. So if now we uh, give EBA this leading role that sh and have a standing committee there that will focus on this, it, it, should, it should step up the process. We are not convinced by every detail. That's, uh, that's not, not a surprise. Uh, particularly, we, don't, we are not convinced yet that really we want to leave uh, IOPA and uh, ESMA out of the responsibility and have these cross-cutting decisions from EBA to, to the um, uh, sectors that are within the remit of, um, uh, of uh, ESMA or IOPA. 
And here again, I think the, um, the, the, the statement would be, let's prioritize, let's look at the banking sector, uh, let's task EBA what, what is with, with that what is really needed in the banking sector now and not uh, um, think, about, think too much about a new architecture because uh, that's something for the midterm. And coming to this uh, midterm as a last point, larger picture, other elements, you called it also in your uh, paper, which is very helpful. We think um, if we look at the uh, making a difference between different sectors, also uh, we have to look at the um, material regulation, the substance matter, uh, um, and here it might, there might be the case uh, of really putting the AML legislation for banks into a regulation. That would uh, alleviate many concerns that we also have in the um, ESA review because uh, it's, it's very hard to imagine that really EBA can assess uh, shortcomings in a member state against the directive plus national law, which is now foreseen. Uh, and when that national law is not in place uh, or is not, um, is not in conformity with the directive, then you would have to look at, uh, um, at a law infringement procedure by, against the member state, and that's a very cumbersome thing if you think about scandals that are happening on the ground. There, there has to be some tool that is uh, more direct, and I've, I'm afraid that is only possible on the basis of a, of a regulation. Uh, Obviously, within the longer term is also the idea um, for, uh, for the dedicated authority, and I think um, uh, uh, you, you, the timing you mentioned in your paper, something about uh, 2022, uh, that, that, that sounds quite ambitious. Um, um, our plea would be to really prioritize work. First, like a, look at banks, look at banking supervision, then look at uh, a, maybe a regulation for banks, and then have the larger picture of the, uh, of the AML in the whole financial sector and also in the non-financial sector. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Josh, um, you were very crisp at the beginning, so you can react to this. Um, if you don't, I will. I'll let you react first. I'm gonna... No, go, go for it. <laughs> uh, no, it's a lot of interesting food for thought. I mean, I think there, there's a tension between responding immediately and thinking about the longer term because the longer term takes a while. And so, you know, if it would take several years to establish an agency, by the way, that agency could be the proposal that we advocate. There are also a variety of other ways to do it. We came up with six other permutations. I'm sure there are more we didn't think of. You want to keep the existing ESA architecture in place. You could have each ESA do it separately. You could have a hybrid joint venture of all of them. There are different ways to do it. But in any event, I would say that you know, <clears throat> there is a certain logic in using the political momentum created by Danska, ABLV, Pilatus, and, you know, starting the discussion now, even if it doesn't happen by 2022. Um, I, I recognize, uh, you know, for people who work in uh, the Directors General and have to actually be practitioners and implement, I recognize, you know, the difficulty of dealing with transposition of existing directives, going through the transition period in which now new directives in MLD5 need to be transposed, and then already thinking about the longer term. I mean, that's hard. Um, 
and I don't have an easy answer for that because I know it, it is sometimes impossible to do two things at once. I would just say that I don't, I, uh, this requires a huge caveat because I'm an American. Uh, now is a good time to note that the United States would be far from compliance with AML D4 or AML D anything because we have no uh, beneficial ownership registry at the state or national level, public or non-public, and that's a problem. Having said that, um, uh, I don't think that even a perfectly transposed AML D5, which will require great resources from, from the European Union to make sure the member states do that, even a perfectly transposed AML D5, I don't think would really address the fundamental supervisory architecture and the incentive structure because, you know, it, I, I think it primarily deals with public beneficial ownership registries, registers of bank accounts, um, better coordination between uh, national authorities, all of which is really important and I would view as supplemental but distinct from this the incentive structure issue. Um, I think that that's the fundamental problem that underpins where where the EU is now. Uh, just one moment. I, I agree that AML and prudential supervision are, are linked and there's a tension in what we're proposing because we're saying this needs to be streamlined in one place, but then of course the, if there were to be a central European AML authority, whether it's an EAMLA or an empowered ESA or some other hybrid, that entity would not be the prudential supervisor. That would be the SSM for the Eurozone and the national competent authorities for the outside the Eurozone. And that's a tension, but I think that that's a practical reality based on the fact that, you know, that the common market's larger than, than the banking union, and I don't know how to get out of that. I, I would argue that th that tension is, is there, and you have to deal with it, but that you're better off having some kind of centralized authority, whether it's an EM or something else, because that's one or maybe two or three points of contact for the SSM to talk to on AML. Right now, the SSM has to talk to 28 points of contact, sometimes more if there are multiple national competent authorities responsible for AML. And yes, the SSM has very tight uh, coordination and directs supervision of the less significant institutions. But again, only Prudential doesn't really have access to the AML side of the house. So I, f I recognize that point, but I would argue, I think, that some kind of centralization probably bridges it partially. The only way to, of course, um, you know, eliminate that problem would be to have one completely comprehensive banking union. I would complement that by saying that uh, there are obviously very diverse models in different member states. And it is true that in most member states, the AML supervisor and the prudential supervisor are the same entity. But that's un not universally the case. And there is, in particular, one member state uh, where uh, there is a kind of counter model which is in a way closer functionally to what we advocate at the uh, European level. Now, paradoxically, paradoxically is at the UK. But in the UK, AML is within the remit of the Financial Conduct Authority, while prudential supervision is a prudential regulatory authority, the PRA. And I don't think, I mean, we can discuss whether there are particular AML uh, supervisory failures in the UK, but I don't think there is a clear case to say this model is clearly inferior, provided that there is proper coordination and dialogue. Uh, between uh, the two relevant authorities. Uh, I think the important point is the one Josh just made. If you have a European AML authorities that resolves essentially all the home host issues, 
that resolves uh, if the um, agency has authority over various sectors, and I'll come back to that in a minute, uh, it resolves a lot of the sectoral fragmentation, which is a very significant problem in the US, but is also a problem in Europe, because right now we are focused on banking, but we'll discover very soon if we fix the banking issues that fragmentation across sectors is a, is a major issue. Um, and, uh, and obviously having it, as you said, uh, at the single market level uh, is very important if you don't want to encourage weak links to be created in the countries that would be in the single market but not in the banking union. Um, now, of course, there's a big elephant in the room here, which is Brexit and the status of the UK after Brexit in terms of uh, membership or not of the single market. We allude to that in the paper. We don't go into all the um, uh, maddening complexities of the Brexit issue. Uh, because we don't have the clarity at this point, but that's uh, something that may need uh, special treatment. I want to say, however, that there is a not insignificant legal uh, difficulty in providing, uh, in granting AML supervision to the SSM. Uh, because apart from the fact that the SSM would be only banks or uh, sectoral fragmentation, it would be only Eurozone or more accurately banking union area. Uh, which may expand beyond the Eurozone in the next few years, but still not the entire single market. But the legal obstacle is serious because it's not clear that AML authority can be granted under Article 127.6, which is the current basis for the SSM. And it's not clear either that the ECB can be empowered through single market legislation, which would be a straightforward basis for new authority as it is for the ESAs. So, so this legal issue is, um, is significant. We, in our slides, uh, our proposed EMLA is described as a fourth ESA. Uh, actually, that's, that's a debatable way to put it, and I think we shouldn't use that um, uh, vocabulary uh, looking forward because it's confusing, given that the ESAs by their nature are, two, are within a two-tier architecture, kind of supervisors of supervisors, if you will, whereby what we propose uh, would be a unitary architecture, even uh, so it would work with national competent authority in a similar way to, say, the SSM or GGComp. Uh, but, uh, but I think what is clear is the legal basis we provide, uh, we propose is, uh, is the same as for uh, the ESAs. Just one more point I want to make, um, and I'm already too long. Yeah, put back up. yeah exactly. Um, I want to emphasize, because that may not have been clear for everybody, the complementarity between the Commission proposal of mid-September and what we propose. So I don't think these two um, proposals are competing in any sense with the possible ex exception of principal policymakers' attention, because, you know, people can only do one thing at once. Um, so what we're saying is not that, uh, is emphatically not that the Commission proposal is, you know, unadvisable or anything. We don't spend much time in the paper actually assessing it. What we're saying is that it's a different time horizon uh, from the kind of structural issues we try to address. And indeed, even in the most optimistic uh, timetable, the new agencies that we advocate could not be up and running before probably end 2022 at the latest, as we argue in the paper. Uh, we could imagine um, uh, an empowerment in a first phase only for banks, which would address some of your concerns, Olaf, and then a phase possibly conditional expansion of that remit to non-bank financial institutions or non-financial uh, obliged entities. Um, but uh, but so, so, so it's really a, a different, uh, you could see in a way the commission proposal for 
amendment to uh, ESA's review as a bridge to the structural solution, which would be more like uh, what we advocate. We don't see that as a reason not to discuss the steady state now, because precisely as Josh said, there is momentum now, there is policy awareness, and Tobias, you said the exact same thing. I mean, the scandals of this year are probably large enough that you should think about a structural solution. You should probably not wait for them to be even bigger in the future, because they're already pretty large. On this note, I'll uh, go back to my chair's role and uh, uh, open it up to the floor uh, to your uh, questions. Can I, can I just, yeah, can I just come in yeah. and, and react just, just very, very briefly on, on, on that last point that you made about the, um, <coughs> about the, uh, um, the, the choice in this, uh, of, of, of the EBA um, within the ESA review proposal to, uh, to concentrate tasks in, in, in the EBA. Um, I just wanted to stress, under, under, under Lucas' control as well, this is not the end state, uh, and this is not the, um, we have not, by putting this on the table and using an existing vehicle, which was already there for the expediency uh, reasons, we have not settled this issue of where, of whether and where any central AML supervisory authority may well sit. That will be a job, I think, for, for in particular, when Raluca uh, and, and, and uh, we, we come to look at this whole issue of um, the report on the Central Financial Intelligence Unit, it is clear that we are going to bring in this issue as well of how are we going to organize EU supervision. So that is a debate to be had. And we haven't, I think we've made it clear in the communication, we have not prejudiced that debate already by choosing to put certain tasks into the European Banking Authority and give them resources to do something. That is an, an interim solution at this, this stage, and we will see where that ends up. Okay, so uh, time for uh, questions and remarks from the floor. As usual, uh, the rules apply. Please introduce yourself um, and uh, try to make it uh, sound like a question. Yes, please. Hi. Hello, my name is Markus Scheuren. I work in the European Parliament in the Econ Committee Secretariat, um, uh, among other things on AML issues. So I, I worked uh, on AMLD4, AMLD5. I remember we, with Toby, we negotiated the fourth anti-money laundering directive on his 50th birthday in Strasbourg at midnight. So it's a very joyful experience. Um, Parliament has been very much driving force on, on AML issues for, for a while with each scandal. We had the Panama Papers Inquiry Committee. We had the... Uh, the taxes special committees, um, um, ACON together with the Libre Committee was um, uh, quite demanding its position uh, towards the other institutions, both in MLD4 and MLD5. Um, I'm delighted to, 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 to see and read, read your paper from, from Bruegel, which is, is very ambitious and very driving forward the, the debate, which is, I guess, welcome in Parliament. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to hear for the first time. Um, Parliament and, and Council uh, and, and Commission has, has long time advocated the need for further harmonization and central oversight. So I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to hear for the first time from a representative from Council and from the German Ministry of Finance that you, that you support a, a, a full harmonization, a regulation on AML and even maybe a future AML um, agency by maybe not by 2022, but I mean, that's historical. I mean, it's, it's amazing how far we have come 
So I'm looking forward to further scandals to, to, to make this come forward. Um, um, my, my, my question, um, two questions. Uh, I think Nicola Joshua mentioned that the, the, the fragmentation of oversight of, um, of AML. I think we're quite advanced in the, um, the uh, oversight and, and uh, supervision of, of the banking sector. We all agree to that. And then there's an issue of implementation and enforcement and so on. But there are a lot of non-financial actors in the non-banking sector. We're talking lawyers and so on. If we look at the, the Panama Papers scandal, which is Mossack Fonseca, which is a, a, a lawyers, right? Um, so a big issue was oversight of intermediaries. Um, so what, what would you advocate as next steps there, which is much more complicated and which is probably the biggest loophole in the, in the AML um, oversight and, and supervision? And the last one, since the, uh, our, our German colleague is already so enthusiastic about further um, harmonization and European solutions, uh, if we consider a European AML agency, why not go immediately as well for an EU FIU, which uh, Parliament has been advocating as well? That would be quite complementary. It would be logical to have both of them there. Thanks. On the uh, on the intermediaries, so and I may be a little uh, heterodox here too. So on the intermediaries, you made a very good point that I forgot to respond to, which is intermediaries are different because they're not financial institutions. They're important. Uh, they're not financial institutions, and they are extremely numerous. Perhaps you raise a very good point. Perhaps if there were a centralized authority or centralized authorities, it would make sense to then, under the unitary architecture, redelegate back in a two-tier structure for intermediaries and have better oversight, which is actually what the Financial Conduct Authority does in the UK. With professional well. bodies, so they have an office of professional bodies. Because yeah. it which would be self-regulatory. Yeah, it, which is I'm not saying self-regulatory. We'll come yeah. to that in a second. But perhaps it's just too much to do. You know, every lawyer, accountant, realtor, uh, etc., art dealer art in, in 28. In 28 member states in, from Brussels, that might not work great. Um, financial sector is more important, more centralized, and more highly regulated. Uh, and we wouldn't cover Panama. So on uh, on FIUs, on FIUs, and then and then intermediaries. So on FIUs, I, I think that I, I need to dive deeper into the discussion right now. I'm aware that there's this paper, there's a paper coming out next year from uh, from the Department of Justice. The paper next year. Uh, Certainly more coordination and sharing of information within the EU among FIUs would make a lot of sense above and beyond the minimum standards set by the Egmont group. And that's really just a voluntary grouping. There's no enforcement. There are no enforcement teeth there. So making sure that information is actually shared proactively and in a timely manner would be good. Creating a centralized FIU seems quite ambitious. And I say that as someone who says there should be a central AML supervisory authority because the work of FIUs is primarily to support local police and national law enforcement. Uh, they, of course, support supervisors, too, but that's not their main job. And I can just imagine that being really complicated. That's all I can really say about that. Um, on intermediaries, to be a little bit heterodox, uh, I think intermediaries 
are relevant, and uh, FATF recommendations call for AML obligations on intermediaries. The AML directives call for AML obligations on intermediaries. I'm not well versed in how well that's been transposed across all the member states. Now's an, uh, what's that? Not not well. Uh, now's another time to acknowledge that the U.S. is not in compliance with that FATF recommendation. You may notice a recurring theme as I answer the questions about the EU. I'll work in a lot of the places where we've just not complied with FATF recommendations. That's another one. But I actually think intermediaries are, in general, uh, less important than the financial sector because there's so much more to be done in the financial sector. And, and I could be over-extrapolating from the U.S. situation where one of the problems we have with intermediaries is that there is no national regulation. It's generally state level or professional bodies, so enforcing would be tough. Uh, and then, of course, particularly on lawyers, that would be a knockdown, drag-out fight with uh, the bar, with the attorneys because of attorney-client privilege. But putting that aside, yes, AML obligations on intermediaries are good. They're helpful. It's a FATF recommendation, and more, more is good. But there's so much more to be done on, on financial supervision. And when the EU creates a centralized EMLA, and I can check that box, I would say then you got to look at um, hedge funds, private equity, securities broker-dealers. Um, which I have not delved as deeply to understand how well that's all being the payment service, electronic payments as we have emerging fintech, PayPal's of the world. Um, I know more about the status in the U.S., but it's much more fragmented and much less robust. Um, so my understanding is that those all have AML obligations, but I don't know who supervises each and each member state or how well. Um, and I would say, again, going back to the U.S. experience uh, and some recent cases that have been out there, um, it's clear that in the U.S. there's very robust enforcement on banks and very large fines. There have not been fines to the same extent on broker-dealers. And when we say broker-dealers in the U.S., that covers a lot. I think it might be less in Europe in general. That, I mean, that's most of like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs in the U.S. I mean, they have, they have banking elements. But, um, and that's also small broker-dealers like mom and pop. Uh, and then payment services in the United States, like PayPal or Western Union for that matter, do not have a federal functional regulator at all. It's generally done at the state level, although the Internal Revenue Service has a role. Um, point being, there's still a lot to be done in the financial sector. I think banks are the most important because they're banks and they're unique, but uh, there could be a lot hiding in those other parts that are, tend to be less vigorously regulated because they don't pose the same systemic prudential risk, macro prudential risk. Um, I would close by pointing out another deficiency in the U.S., which is that on delegation, much of the examination by the Securities and Exchange Commission and Commodity Futures Trading Commission is actually delegated to the self-regulatory organizations, which is industry, um, which is suboptimal. And then hedge funds and private equity and venture capital firms do not have AML program obligations in the U.S., which happens to be another uh, violation of FATF standards. Uh, on the FIU thing, I now just create pooling the FIU function at the European level would be very challenging. It would raise it would raise issues of subsidiarity, as Josh just said, even though he didn't use the jargon. Um, I think also for AML supervision, uh, there is a precedent at hand. Actually, there are several. There is ECB, SSM, and there is a direct supervision, sorry, uh, function of ESMA over uh, credit rating agencies and trade repositories. When I say that, I always have to say I'm a board member in one of the trade repository uh, disclosure clause. Uh, so, um, so you can base the reform on those precedents which show A, that it is feasible, and B, where there are lo many lessons to be learned on you know, how best to do it. 
the FIU would be much more uncharted territory. So our view is not to say you shouldn't envisage your FIU, just to say, let's prioritize AML supervision. There's a clear failure here. There's a clear case for reform. It's doable because we have precedent. And then if that works, then you can imagine moving to the next step. And that's actually in the paper. Uh, Olaf? Yes, uh, so let's, uh, let me put on some disclaimers. And, uh, <laughs> you made history. <laughs> Before making too much history, yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, my point is, and uh, was and is, uh, we are open to this, uh, this, um, discuss now uh, supervisory landscape. And uh, what we have on the table is the proposal and the ESA review. And we, what we also have on the table is uh, some discussion on what has to be done um, besides legislative activity and forming up an action plan so with the things we can do now before uh, IBA, uh, um, the EBA regulation is amended or in parallel. And our point is, um, yes, we are open to discuss that, but that will take some time to design a new supervisory landscape. And if you want to act, uh, act now and quickly, then we have to focus on things we can do easier. And amongst them is, for example, the change to CRD. Amongst them are the uh, agreements between um, uh, authorities, between SSM and uh, AML. Um, supervisors and uh, we have to work on that and we have to uh, prioritize that work. And then uh, also we are open to discuss the, uh, the, the, the further landscape. We don't want to rush now in the last uh, two months that we have to discuss these proposals into an entirely new landscape that we can't, uh, where the, we can't judge the consequences that I pointed to these. Uh, uh, needed differentiation of sectors, banking, non-banking, financial, and uh, non-financial sector. So um, on the other point of the um, uh, European FIU, I think the paper makes it clear that we are in different pillars of the system, uh, that the function of the FIU is different, and what our people of, the, um, of, of our FIU tell me is that they really fear adding a layer um, where they need operative exchange directly with other countries, and there is a, an, an information exchange that is worldwide uh, beyond uh, EU between FIUs. Uh, adding another layer, a European layer, would be cumbersome because they have to uh, exchange uh, information quickly. And um, there, there might be a, a new discussion about uh, competencies and who is in charge where. And it's not trivial. It's not trivial to to solve that. Um, what we also have, also there in the FIU sector, we have other um, other threats that can improve um, improve cooperation. Now there is a, the field platform uh, moderated by the Commission. There is the Eggman Group. There is uh, Europol uh, providing tools to exchange. Um, uh, uh, to, to, to information technology to exchange information, so that that's uh, that that's all the that are the priorities there, and not uh, European FIU according to our position. Any comments on this uh, or other questions? Yes, please. Thank you, Bjarne Sethmeier from Politico. If if I may uh, ask a question to both Commission officials uh, on the panel. Um, 
given the controversial nature of the ESA's review, uh, do you feel that you might have shot yourself in the foot by slipping the AML amendment into the ESA's review? Uh, and secondly, if I may, uh, would you personally, or as commission officials, would you see it as a failure if five years from now we do not have a central EU agency that deals with money laundering? Thank you. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. On the ESA review, um, no, I, I, I think actually, um, I, I would say almost the, the, the contrary. I think um, this has given a renewed dynamic to that negotiation, and that negotiation, I think, is, is ongoing. Uh, we will see to what extent it's, it's a, a realistic prospect to get this complete by the end of the legislature, but um, uh, we're hopeful that, uh, that at, at the highest level there is an agreement that this is really something that needs to be, uh, um, uh, needs to be agreed quickly and that we need to keep that momentum. And, and I think that, that leads into that second question that you've got. Um, I would say, um, and I would repeat what I said at, at, at the end of my, my intervention, my first intervention, is that, is that you have to keep that political momentum. And so I, I would see there's a risk that if we do not move towards a more rational, coherent structure which brings together, uh, um, a, 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 which improves the situation of coordination amongst AML supervisors, but with the, the, the broader prudential supervision, um, if that is not uh, um, achieved with, by using this political momentum which exists now, I, I would fear that we would then fall back into a much more static situation. And then, I think as, as, as Nicolas said, uh, we don't want to be waiting for the next crisis or scandal to arise, which may be e even bigger, um, in order to make, you know, to, to bring realization that that's really what is actually needed. I would like to, if you allow me, I would like to add uh, to, to this uh, uh, a couple of points. We had a problem, we had many bank scandals, and the Commission tabled the proposal uh, in September just to respond to this problem. So. And we believe, as I, I fully agree uh, with what was said, that the, um, uh, this proposal is just, uh, you know, bridging uh, in a way, um, not, it's not a bridge solution to uh, a future anti-money laundering uh, uh, agency because we're not yet there, but it's a bridging solution to, uh, again, a problem and a response to a problem. As we speak, before even the ESA's review, the EBA has competencies under its own regulation to conduct, for instance, in member states, uh, um, investigations on breach of the union law. And uh, it is the case in all member states that were hit, I mean, that the banks were hit by scandals that the EBA conducted uh, or is currently conducted, uh, conducting investigations. I will only just mention uh, the investigation in Malta which resulted in a conclusion that the union law was breached and the commission adopted uh, last, uh, last week on the 8th of, uh, of um, uh, November on a, on a formal opinion calling you know, the, uh, the Maltese FIU to follow on uh, what the EBA uh, concluded. So this is about the ESAS uh, review. Uh, about your second question, whether you know, if in five year times uh, we will not have an anti-money laundering agency, 
it's difficult to reply, but I will not see it as a failure because I think that you know the reply to a lack of enforcement, because this is perhaps what we have now in the Union. We have a lack of enforcement. It's not to adopt new legislation, but to make certain that the legislation which is there is properly implemented. So yes, we'll have this uh, reflection. There are calls that we're not, uh, uh, we, uh, we are hearing, you know. And w there is a preoccupation also in the Commission. Uh, we have discussions with member states. We hear every time the Parliament calling for for a concentration of anti-money laundering of AML uh, tasks into a European, be it EU, FIU, be it an agency, but anyhow, coming with a common umbrella. So we are hearing all this. We want to have a reflection, but again, if it, if it is not the case that it will be there in five-year times, I will be very happy if the fourth and the fifth are correctly implemented. We will be already very, very far. Maybe one comment, even so, the question was not addressed to the other panelists, left alone to me. Um, uh, we make a point in the paper analytically to separate two debates which we see as useful to separate. One is, should the architecture be two-tiered or should it be unitary? And we define those terms in the paper. Uh, and then there's the other question which we view as coming downstream from the first one, which is okay, in either choice, and especially if uh, the EU decides to go for a unitary architecture, then on whose turf should it be? Which agency should be empowered for that? And this is where we discuss the pluses and minuses of SSM, EDA, new agency, and other options. Uh, but we think this distinction between the issue of principle, what's the architecture, and then the issue of turf, if you will, which agency uh, as a hub, is an analytically useful, and I think also for the policy debate, uh, a useful decision to make. Why do we advocate a unitary architecture? It's actually quite simple, and it echoes what Raluca said earlier in this conversation, that there is a need for preventative and proactive action. If you have a two-tier uh, architecture, the European tier always comes very late. And that's what we see in the current developments, and I think it's important to mention, as you just said, uh, what the EBA is doing in Malta, uh, investigating in uh, Denmark, Estonia, Latvia, uh, other countries as well, maybe. Um, but that comes very late after the breach, and it comes only after there has been essentially a supervisory failure at the national level. So if you want to have this preventative and proactive element throughout the single market, a two-tier architecture almost by definition cannot achieve that. And that's, I think, an argument that uh, we try to make as clearly as possible in the paper and has to be uh, in the discussion uh, somehow. Yes, please. Uh, Julien Nouf from the European Association of uh, Public Banks. I also act as a secretary at the Working Group on Anti-Money Laundering of uh, the European Banking Industry um, Committee. Um, obviously, we cannot, uh, cannot deny that there has been problems in individual banks, so it's, uh, obviously I understand the discussions around uh, how strengthening supervision of, uh, of banks, but looking at the regulatory framework as it is. And we're talking about uh, solutions where we want to strengthen either the EBA or the ECB. Uh, when I think of the EBA, we all think of an authority, but these are two people working on this currently. So uh, we should not create false ex expectations because they will not be met. You don't create an agency from one day to the other. This will take a huge time. And I wonder, are we not taking the problem from the wrong side? Because 
it's a quite uh, one of the last areas uh, where we have minimum harmonization uh, directives is AML. In the rest of the financial regulation, uh, you don't find this anymore. So I don't, I'm not saying we should go for, for harmonization, but should we not start discussing, addressing the problem, where can we have a kind of unified, harmonized approach? We should first build the common rules before we talk about common supervision, because uh, how will one supervisor deal with all the differences in the different member states? You have different thresholds for beneficial ownership. You have different transparency registers. We're very far away from a single um, database, a transparency register at European level. Um, we got rid of the black of the white list of equivalent countries, which would also give a kind of assessment uh, from EU level of which members, which countries in the world are risky. I mean. Uh, there are other things to do to improve the, the fight against uh, money laundering, and I think talking about a unified uh, authority uh, creates false expectations, also in the public, and uh, this uh, will even more strengthen the, the, the idea that there needs to be a harsher political response. So are we not going from, taking the problem from the wrong side? saying, um, and, and first of all, I, I, don't, I don't think we're, we're certainly not intending to create false impressions and false expectations. I think that I made it quite clear. I think this is a first step, this proposal. Uh, it is not the creation of an EU, a central EU AML authority. Far from it. It has a certain amount of limited tasks which will be matched with some additional resources. So we're moving from 1.8 to I think about 10 full-time employees. I mean, that's not going to, that's not going to have, uh, you know, to, to, to do the trick that, 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 um, uh, um, that, that on the basis of, of, of Bruegel's proposal. That, that, and we're not pretending that that is the case. There is a longer-term issue, and there is a longer-term issue, and that is in our communication, where we need to be thinking about something more structural, uh, something more ambitious. And that issue, you're absolutely rightly point out, that issue of doing or, or, or thinking about a future central structure, and I, I agree with Ulrika, we haven't decided that yet, by the way. It's not, certainly not in our communication, it's not commission policy that there will be a central EU AML authority. What we have decided is that we are going to have that debate, and we're going to have that discussion sometime next year when we, when we produce the report. Uh, but at the same time, it's very important, I think, to have a discussion about the level of harmonization, and, and this is already starting to happen now amongst the, uh, the various committees that, that meet on this, that there is serious talk about this. Now, I, I, I came into anti-money laundering, I think it was in 2010, and one of the first things I had to do was to start thinking about how we were going to do the fourth anti-money laundering directive, and the very first question, more or less, that I got was, are you going to do a regulation? And I think thinking a little bit about it at the, at, at the time, it, it was clear that we were a very long way from being able to do that. There were all sorts of reasons why a regulation would not work in the field of anti-money laundering. All sorts of reasons. That being said, times move on. Uh, the business case for having something more European in this, in this approach, I think, is clearly there. We've seen it. Um, and we've got also other examples in other areas of financial services where you could you also similarly argue, probably, maybe capital requirements here, but it's all very national, it's all very different. But we've still got a directive and, and a regulation alongside that. So that is an approach, I think, that is, is being increasingly adopted at European level. So I think it's realistic to, uh, to have that debate, 
to see what elements of the framework might be, might be prone to a more harmonized approach and see what might be still need to be left at, uh, at national level. And that debate needs to be had in conjunction with this issue of do we move towards more centralization? And if so, what kind of form of centralization of authority would that take? No, I don't have anything to add on this, just that I, I believe, just perhaps one point. Uh, I think that, you know, the problem being with banks, because we don't have to, bish, to uh, beat around the bush, the scandals are with banks. I fully agree that we have to prioritize and start here before proposing a, an all-embedding solution to also include a centralized authority for lawyers, accountants, tax uh, advisors. Let's start with the problem that we're having. And I believe that also uh, this is the line we take uh, in DigiJust that apart from this proposal that the commission tabled together with the colleagues in, in FISMA, so the commission tabled the, the proposal, uh, we also believe that for banks it's a lesson to be learned. And again, as I said in my introductory remark, uh, we also believe that it is for banks to also think that perhaps we should not wait for money laundering to be produced and for FinCEN to come and to point the finger at money laundering being taking place in a bank in the EU, but we should flag this in advance and try to avoid uh, for the future, perhaps I'm naive, but I don't think that any scandal of the kind will happen because I imagine that uh, all banks are taking now a more careful uh, look because reputation is perhaps the most important uh, resource in this business. Oh, um, that's a very hopeful statement. Uh, Josh? Why? Uh, yeah, I'll, I, I'll uh, disagree with the premise. I, I think that... Uh, Solving the issue of supervisory incentives is more important than harmonization of law um, because AML is, is difficult in practice, but it's not rocket science conceptually. I mean, what you're trying to do is find out if a bank has customers that are moving huge amounts of money with no reason, and then if you see that, go in and look and find out what's going on and see if they had proper controls in place. Uh, that, of course, is hard to do in practice because people try to disguise what they're doing, but it's not that complicated. Um, Let's take the example of Danske Bank, because there's a lot publicly known about that from the report that the bank uh, commissioned. Uh, and I'm going to forget the exact numbers, but order of magnitude, this is right. So over a several year period, this small bank in Estonia um, that had developed a large non-resident clientele, which was mostly shell companies moving money for people from the former Soviet Union, Russia CIS moved something like two, the equivalent of $250 billion in cross-border wire transfers. I think that was euros and US dollars. And over several years. And let's not, you know, let's contextualize. Like, I don't, I don't know offhand what the average bank of that size would do, but this was just a very heavy amount of money movement internationally for a very small bank concentrated within this portfolio of clients, which were basically shell companies. And on top of that, that was generating most of the profits not just for Danske Bank Estonia, but was generating a large chunk of profits for Danske Bank. And it's a tiny part of Danske Bank. So it was making a ton of money by moving funds repeatedly in huge volume for shell company clients. Uh, turned out we're involved in various criminal money laundering schemes, no surprise, right? So I don't think harmonization has that much to do with it. It's supervisory failure. Yeah, you could say, well, what was the Estonian interpretation of customer <laughs> due diligence and was the beneficial ownership determination for due diligence on an account 10% or 
these are things worth harmonizing, but that's, that's not the issue. The issue is supervisory failure. And our argument, and I'm not saying that that was exactly what happened. It's hard to say in any individual case, individual case what happened. I don't know that there was political pressure on the Estonian regulator at that time. Subsequently, they installed a new head of the Financial Supervisory Authority, and he has cleaned things up and clamped down, and they actually had the license of another bank, Verso Bank, withdrawn, which was also tied to Russia's CIS money laundering, so they seem to be doing a good job now. So a change at the top made a difference. But the fundamental issue was not interpretations of how, you know, what type of documentation needed to be collected. Did the passport match the address on the driver's license? That was not, that was not the issue. I think we'll take a last question, and uh, because we're already slightly past our limit, but uh, please. This is live stream, so we need you yes. on the microphone. Well, my name is Javier Arias. I'm representing BBVA, and well, thank you for the organizing this, this panel. And uh, as a bank, uh, well, we are fully agree on that. I think that we have to strengthen the uh, uh, supervisory measures, the uh, precautionary measures on, on, on avoiding this type of, of, of incidents. But uh, <clears throat> for th first of all, the, the probably the first line of, of defense is on enforcing and implementing the the law, and I think that uh, it's, it's very welcome those those enhancements which have been uh, proposed in, proposed in, in September. But saying that, uh, it seems that I have the, the, the feeling that it seems that all the banks they are doing wrongly, and they are not taking into consideration the anti money laundering measures. And probably this is a, a very few there are very few cases and in very few countries as well. So uh, there are uh, best practices. There are many banks which are. Uh, operating in many countries in many jurisdictions with very complicated environments and they have implemented very tough measures to anticipate this kind of events to happen so uh, already I don't think that there, there is a waterproof that anti-money laundering is not going to happen anywhere anytime on any bank that could happen but there are strong measures already and probably the the, the most um, I think that the most compelling case is banks. We are not eager at all to get involved in a in a prudential and reputational issue. First of all, because it destroys reputation, and second, because it's very costly in terms of of fines. So uh, I think that no one can allow to, to to you know to get that. So second, on the whether it would be better to have um, independent authority to do, to deal with that. Well, that could be desirable in, in some extent, but uh, the thing is that probably the first step to, would be to ensure that the, the, the law is enforced in a meaningful way and is well designed st and strong supervision on, 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 the, on, the, on the present regulation because sometimes this is not only one, uh, we need two for tango, and in this, in this case it's banks and probably supervisors had to uh, uh, conduct their, their, their activities as well. Thanks for this uh, quasi-question. This uh, gives me the opportunity to uh, give the floor, the panelists, uh, <coughs> uh, a last chance to uh, give concluding remarks, and I will take them in reverse order. So, starting with you, Olaf. I, I think both of the last uh, questions were very welcome contributions, also to talk about resources of of um, people, uh, well, uh, concerned with uh, preventing um, uh, uh, money laundering. And there is a point to be made about, um, uh, in fact, 
there are not so many uh, AML supervisors at, as you might think. Uh, in a large country like ours, and that's already quite a lot, we've got 120, 130 people uh, specializing on uh, AML supervision for, for banks. So the first line of defense, is, uh, as which was just raised, is of, uh, raised is obviously this construction of having obliged entities who have to do the preventary work themselves. And there are a lot of people uh, in the large banks that are doing uh, working in the AML uh, departments, compliance departments, that are concerned with these issues. Um, when it now comes to, to, to change the supervisory landscape, Obviously, I shared uh, the earlier concern. Um, there is there is a resource issue. Um, if we if we introduce, for example, the two-tier system in supervision, I think that's more burdensome in terms of having uh, supervisors employed in the in the system. And uh, if uh, I don't know if many of our 120 people sit in committees in. Uh, in EBA, obviously they are not talking to the banks at the same time. So there, there is an issue, and there is an issue about uh, expectations that, that we raise when we say we are improving supervision, and then uh, we are not staffing not only EBA that uh, conducts the second tier, but we also would need to staff and strengthen considerably uh, um, AML supervision in the, um, in the member states. So um, I agree with both points as concerns, uh, although I don't have the solution at hand. And um, Well, on my side, uh, I would like to repeat what, uh, uh, what I said and Toby. Uh, uh, I, I don't want to, to rule out uh, any um, discussion about uh, a future uh, AML agency. I'm just saying that this is um, uh, um, good food for thought. We are giving it a thought in the commission. Uh, we think that the proposal that was tabled uh, with the ESAS review and uh, strengthening EBA is just a first step. So uh, we cannot move. We, we should perhaps consider as well an incremental approach. Uh, so um, uh, we consider that the first step uh, was done. And uh, as, uh, as uh, we in, our, in my unit, we're in charge of the fourth and fifth anti-money laundering directive, I feel obliged to also uh, recall that uh, uh, the important thing is also to have these directives transposed correctly in member states. It is not yet the case, and then implemented in member states. Because again, I'm a lawyer, I should be happy if laws are changing uh, often because this gives uh, you know a good life for lawyers. But I believe that the that the response to a lack of enforcement is not the adoption uh, immediately of new rules. Okay, uh, very, very, very briefly, I think I will conclude by saying that I think there are no, no very silver bullets here in terms of resolving this issue. I mean, we have a very complex landscape, so we have to navigate around that. I would say that um, as always in the case of, of the way things move at EU level, we have a very complex negotiation structure. I think um, we tend to get driven forward when, when problems occur, and I think that that creates a momentum, and I think that in this particular space, 
uh, it's very it's very necessary to to harness that momentum and and push forward. Um, I, I didn't mention this issue of the non-financial sector because I think that was an issue that came up uh, um, in, in the course of discussions. The only thing I would say about that is that um, again, this is it's, it's a very complex area, but I think that the focus at the moment has been on um, money laundering scandals, particularly in financial institutions in banks. That is where our focus lies at the moment. I'm sure that this issue of, of uh, the non-financial sector will at some stage come in on this and, 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 and need to be resolved. Welcome, your famous last words. Uh, closing thought, why this, why this matters, um, as the, as the uh, commission representatives have said, it's, you know, it's a reputational uh, harm to the European Union's uh, financial sector and you know, does, uh, has a uh, material effect on business, potentially. Beyond that, though, I, I would just emphasize and underline that I view it as a security risk and a real foreign policy issue. And, and the reason for that is pretty simple. Like, ask yourselves, what, what drives demand for these services? Is people who want to move money in an opaque or anonymous manner and hide where it came from and what they want to do with it? And so, you know, when you have things with a volume of hundreds of billions of dollars, it's going to be hard to disentangle and figure out what it was. But I think it's safe to assume it's a lot of things, and a lot of it's not good. In the cases we have documented from around the world, whether it's from Russia or Southeast Asia and the Malaysia 1MDB scandal, or uh, theft of uh, assets from Angola, to you know, we could go on and on and list things from all over the world. The common theme is uh, is the demand is driven by bad actors who want to hide what they're doing. So whether it's corruption and theft of state assets or organized crime cleaning its money or, um, or just capital flight or even you know, foreign interference in, um, in elections or political processes as we've seen in France, for example, with, um, with a bank that had slices pulled for uh, AML violations being involved in uh, funneling money to the National Front. Um, there is I don't think it's a regulatory issue. Ultimately, if there's an opaque channel that can be moved, used to move money and we don't know what it is, I think it's a prudent thing to assume the worst, because um, it could be used for that. And I would say look at the demand side, and if you want to see who's willing to pay money to move their money in this way, it's because it's something that we don't, we don't want to happen. Thanks for that, and uh, I hope uh, you found this session enlightening. I apologize as chairman for first finishing late and second having managed my inherent conflict so badly, but uh, I hope you will join me in thanking our panelists for uh, a very enlightening uh, discussion. Thank you very much. <laughs>